<laughs> Go for it. Just talk loud. Yeah, thanks for this day. Thank you for this really nice weather and um, for my brother's great knowledge of um, this material of theology. I pray that you would just bless our time together. Let us glorify you. Open up our minds. Help us just increase our understanding and help us to draw closer to you through this. In your name. Amen. I didn't pay him to say that thing about great knowledge. Uh, you know, I'll give you $5 later. Um, hey, so we are, um, we're in a study of anthropology, as I understand. Um, I am uh, glad to be back in here. I haven't been in here in so long. They've had me hosting this uh, service in here, and, which I love, but it's fun to be in here too. So, um, so we, I understand we've been studying anthropology, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, Alan just got through the man and God slide, that was, well, which is essentially this one, talking about relationships, right? Did he get all the way through that slide? Okay, I'm going to start with this slide to lead into the next thing because I think it's so important we talk about this. Um, Alan and I have said it before. I'm going to make a mess here. Alan and I have talked about this before, um, but does anybody, would anybody be able to tell me what is the chief end of man? Why is it that humanity exists? Yeah. To have a relationship with God. For what purpose does that relationship exist? Glorify God. This is absolutely right. So, as we get into this next section, it's really easy to get caught up in the details of theology and kind of systematize things, but forget this one really important thing, that everything we talk about, no matter how seemingly um, redundant or mundane, everything comes back to God's glory. So, uh, let's look a little bit about this issue of the human soul. Um, There are basically two views of human... I don't want to say composition because that sounds so material, but there are basically two views of what makes up man. The first is the dichotomist view. Under dichotomy, there's this idea that man is made up of basically two things. There's immaterial and material. You have the immaterial, that's the idea of the soul or the spirit, and then you have the material and that's pretty much your body. Um, making sense? Pretty simple. Dichotomy, two, there's only two things. Um, do you all, does everybody have the notes? Good stuff. Alright, the trichotomous view, guess what, has three. Um, essentially says that man is composed of three things, body, soul, and spirit. Um, now, in the understanding of the body, this is the idea of self-consciousness. I have a physical being, I'm conscious of it, I realize it. There is a soul, which is the idea of world consciousness, which would be the realm of relationships, Right? understanding my existence in relation to the rest of the world. And then there's the spirit, which relates to God consciousness, which is, would be the center of my relationship with God. Uh, does that make sense? Trichotomous view? Pretty straightforward. All right, before we go to the next slide, now I know you're cheating because you have the notes in front of you, but um, if you were to just say from the basic biblical understanding, what would you say makes the most sense, the dichotomous view or the trichotomous view? You're going to say try? So a couple of people said uh, dichotomous, a couple said try. Any other thoughts? What if we went with secret option C? Okay. I'm going to later advocate for secret option C, okay, which isn't even in the notes. That's how much I've pulled a fast one on you. You like that? Okay. So anyway, we have these essentially two. Now, the question is, what is it? Now, I'm using Alan's notes here, and as we know, Alan likes to say, well, I'm pretty sure it's this. Um, and I do that on a lot of things. This one, I'm going to be honest, 
I don't think that Scripture is teaching directly to whether or not there is a dichotomist or trichotomist composition of man. Now, being cautious, I'm not saying it doesn't have anything to say about it, but the chief goal of Scripture is not for us to explain, oh, guess what? Man has three parts, body, soul, and spirit. That's, there's not a lot of didactic passages on this topic. We kind of have to deduct or do kind of a deductive reasoning to figure this out. So one thing I want to make clear as we're approaching this, I want you to know that while I think there are certain things that we can uh, assume, we can kind of deductive reason and kind of say, well, it sounds like it's this. I want you to understand that knowing this is not a central thing to Scripture. Jesus, central to Scripture. The fact that He is both fully God and fully man, central. This is one of those issues here, whether or not there's a dichotomy or trichotomy. We're essentially trying to read in an understanding of what composes human living. Um, so I just want to, want to make that clear. Now, I think that Alan is probably right, that the Bible probably does lead toward a dichotomous view. Um, he talks here about how the soul and spirit, the two words, are often used inter- interchangeably. Uh, could I get somebody to look up James 5.20 for me? While we're at it, does anybody want to volunteer for James 5.20? Okay, go for it. I want you to have that one ready then. And then, Juliet, do you, do you care then to do Genesis 2.7? All right. Cool. All right. Here's what I'd like to do. Um, Derek, will you read with me or read for me James 5:20? Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Cool. Um, a lot of times we see passages like this in Scripture. We go to other places where it talks about the Spirit itself. Um, but it seems like we talked about the spirit being saved, the soul being saved, and it seems like these two terms are used to talk about the same thing. Does that make sense? Are we following it or you guys just think I'm, I'm crazy? Sometimes we'll see this. You know what, while we're at it, does anybody want to go ahead and look at Luke 1, 46, 47? Because I think that will clear it up a little bit. Um, Luke 1, anybody volunteering to get to it? Yeah, go for it. Right. What's that? Mary responded, and see how she did. Huh? Oh, now I praise the Lord. How I rejoice in God my Savior. Yeah, I'm not sure how that fits, Alan. What was that? Um. Oh, can you read uh, 47 a little bit louder then? And my, um, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Okay. Cool. Sorry about that. Didn't mean to throw you out on a limb there. Um, and what we see here is, now, mind you, these texts are not specifically trying to say, hey, guess what? Soul, spirit. They're just using the terms interchangeably. And the fact that Scripture seems to just kind of use one term or the other gives us a little bit of understanding that, it, hey, this, they might just be talking about the same thing. Now, we can't say just absolutely for sure, but it's arguable that, they, that it's just essentially referring to the same thing. So that gives us kind of a little bit of a leaning towards a dichotomous view. Um, now, can we look at Genesis 2.7? Essentially what we have here is when God creates a man, he makes him out of material things, 
earth and dust, and then breathe spirit into them. Um, now, that might be the best argument for the dichotomous view. Here's the thing. that I think we can at least say that man, obviously, is made up of a spirit or a soul, whatever you want to call it, and a fleshly existence. The complication or the uh, complexity of the immaterial being um, is not really spoken to very much. Okay? We can say very clearly that man has a fleshly body and has a spiritual component. That spiritual component could be more complex than that. Maybe there are different levels of it. One thing we do know is that there's an immaterial and a material. And so I think we should, at the very least, as we approach Scripture, we can assume that much, right? Okay, whether or not there's more complexity, I have to say is, is, is interesting, but is not absolutely essential for us to understand Scripture. Making sense? So let's just say, if, there, if, if it does function in some kind of trichotomy or hexachotomy, I'm making that up because I don't think anybody has that view, um, that would be like six parts. Um, I said that way too fast. Um, doesn't really matter. Um, so anyway, the last thing here, this is the, the Bible makes, makes no clear distinction between soul and spirit except metaphorically. Um, that's not secret. Secret option C is still coming. Um, that's all right. But that's a good guess. Um, here's the thing. This is not in your notes. Alan and I were talking about this. We had lunch this week. He bought me lunch, which is really great. Which, by the way, I'm finding out that when you're volunteering to teach a class or do something, the person feels like indebted to you, and so they buy you lunch. Okay? The other thing, I have a whole other story. There's a volunteer project I've been trying to get done with Servalyria. This is a total side note. It has nothing to do with the notes. And... Um, I, I, had, I had somebody that was donating paint for it, somebody else that was going to donate the time. And as time has gone on, this thing has kept getting pushed back. And the more it gets pushed back, the more people feel bad. And so they're donating more stuff to it. And then they're feeling bad. And I, I ended up going to... Well, I, I shouldn't say because it will give this person away. But I, I, people end up are giving me free stuff. Like, hey, I can't come, but hey, would you like to go and do this? And I'm like, sure. And so the longer this project doesn't happen, the better I come out on it. So um, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start finding new ways to do this. Because when you volunteer and people want to do stuff for you, then if you organize a volunteer project and it doesn't happen, there's probably some kind of a scheme in that. I don't, I'm not trying to do that. Anyway, here's what we're going to do, though. As I'm talking to Alan... Um, we're having lunch, and he's like, you know what, Dan, we didn't talk about the relationship of the heart to this topic. Okay, so this is not in your notes. Um, yeah, so don't worry, don't worry, not in your notes. So we, I added this in here because I think this is important. Um, when we see the word heart referred to in Scripture, now obviously it can refer to different things, but when it's talking in the, um, not just in the physical, you know, that the muscle, the heart, uh, we see it used in about four different ways. It talks about the inner life. It can talk about your... It, there's issues of spiritual things being dealt with when we talk about the heart. Um, we talk about it being the seat of emotions. We talk about the heart being broken. We talk about... Um, actually, when... Uh, is it Stephen? When Stephen, the first martyr, uh, gives the whole explanation of the Gospel and it says that the, the accusers there were... were pierced to the heart or they were cut to the heart which is the idea that like they were really mad the very innermost being of them was offended um, 
We also see it used to describe the seat of intellectual activity. Um, we see a lot of times where it talks about the heart meditating. There's a connection to the heart and thinking. Okay, now this is interesting to me because when we start talking about the dichotomous view, the trichotomous view, um, we tend to be want to, we're separating these things. We'll separate the mind sometimes and say, well, that's part of the soul. And we'll separate the spirit and we'll say, well, that's just about your relationship with God. I think it's interesting that when we see the heart mentioned, the heart seems to talk about more than just one thing. The heart doesn't just deal with spiritual matters. The heart is uh, involved in the decision-making process. It's almost as if when we talk about the heart and it being your innermost being, that every aspect of humanity is connected to it. Does that make sense? That the heart is not just referring to your soul. That the heart has a connection with your mind. The heart has a connection with your emotions. Um, and we know from when we study uh, psychology and so forth that your physical body seems to have a connection to your emotions. Um, and vice versa. And then this is where it gets kind of interesting to me. Um, we have these situations, by the way, um, I've talked about my professor, Dr. Habermas, before, but he's done some studies on these after-body or out-of-body experiences. And he was talking about one, one particularly well-documented case. Is there's this kid who's, and if I've told the story, I apologize, but it works for my illustration. This kid is dying in the hospital room. Okay? Um, he has had this experience where he has said, I've been out of my body. Now, immediately, there's all these things that people say about, well, maybe you just felt this or felt that. But he actually explains that he was floating up above his body, up, 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 and was able to describe things that were on the roof of this building. And actually says, you know what? One of the things I saw when I was up there was there was this tennis shoe, and it didn't look like it had shoestrings. Like, and it was just on the roof. And so somebody's like, well, man, I'm going to go and see what's... And so I, a nurse or a doctor goes up there, and they actually go up, and there's this part of the building where like, you couldn't get up on, but it kind of reaches over, and they find a, a tennis shoe, and the tennis shoe had shoestrings, but they were kind of like wound up underneath it. Now, here's the interesting thing. If indeed... Now, this is pretty good evidence that something happened there. And they have other documented cases about the person, you know, essentially floating up and being able to see things that they would not have been able to see or know. Here's the interesting thing. Let's assume that it's true. How is it he remembers something that happened when he was not in his body? That there is some type of a connection between whatever the soul and the, you know, the physical mind stores information like a computer. And yet somehow he had information that was from a time when he was not technically in his body. Now, I don't know how all that works, but I think this is an interesting thing to understand that the mind and the spirit and however it all fits together, there, there is some type of a connection that we don't necessarily understand. It is dangerous at times to... Um, separate these things too much. Now, obviously, we need to understand that there's a spiritual component to humanity. There's a physical component. We need to recognize that. But I think we get into a lot of danger when we try to separate them too much. Have you ever been to a funeral? And um, maybe it was a funeral of a relative. And somebody comes up and says, you know what? Don't worry about it. That's just a show. Have you ever had somebody tell you that or heard that? I just have to say that that's not necessarily... Now, I understand because essentially we want to say, wow, that's the important thing is that their spirit is with God and that's absolutely right. 
it's dangerous, I'll get to you in just a second, it's dangerous to just say that it is just a cell uh, or a shell. What happened when Jesus was rose from the dead? He had a physical body. What was, what was special about that physical body? Well, there's that, that evidence that it was the same body. It was glorified. Um, he, was, he was able to walk through walls and teleport, as we see in the whole thing with the road to Emmaus. He does ascend into heaven, um, which I'm arguing means that we can fly. Um, I'm not sure of that, but I'm, it's possible. Um, this is the interesting thing. This part of our understanding, when we read 1 Corinthians 15, we understand that part of the human existence is this fleshly body that God has created us with. And Paul actually says, if the, if the bodily resurrection didn't happen, then we of all people are to be most That God rose Jesus, raised up Jesus from the dead bodily, with a glorified body. Okay, we have the same hope. Okay? So I want to be really cautious. When we talk about somebody dying, I don't want to just say that is merely a shell because that is the body that God has given them that He is going to raise from the dead someday. And something about my human existence is directly connected with these bones and this flesh. And so when I talk about eternity, this body's going to be there, man. It's going to be made glorified. There's going to be something special about it, but it's going to be made glorified. So something about my life is directly connected with this. My existence is connected to my physical, physical body as much as to my spiritual body. Um, so I want us to remember that. So when we start talking about dichotomous view, trichotomous view, understand that those are differentiations to have some certain understanding, but that you are still a human being that is made up of all these things and we, we don't necessarily need to be dissecting things that don't need to be dissected. Um, any questions? I think you had your hand up. Yeah, you talk about turning on. I don't know how accurate it is. I mean, the story I'm going to tell you, I'm going to try and make it real short. You don't have to tell anyone. But okay. my dad died and he died three years ago. I lost hmm. two people in six, six years. But anyways, my dad died and we were at the funeral home, and there was people from this church that were at the, at the church, I mean, at the funeral home, and there was this little baby that I'm friends with, and it wasn't, there wasn't nobody playing with the baby, except we felt that my dad, who was dead, was playing with the baby, because there wasn't nobody bothering this baby. He was giggling, and you know, going up like this with his hands. And later on, after the funeral was over, I went to the mother and I said something to her. And she said, yeah, I think your dad was playing with the baby. I don't know how accurate that could be, but nobody really knows what happens after you die. Well, oh, go ahead. Nursing profession, people, nurses and doctors have said that the body stays around for three days to make sure... Oh, that the spirit stays around? Yeah. Well, um, I want to be cautious with things like that. Here's one thing that is certainly clear. We don't know how that transition happens. One thing that's clear that's actually to the point we were making about the unity of the body that uh, we've described before, that death in Scripture is described as separation. 
And the separation of the spirit from the body is a separation that was never meant to happen. And I, I think it's very clear that when, the, when, this, when this transition of, of the physical death happens, we're not really sure how that transition happens. We, we know that it says to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord for the believer. Um, that sounds like immediate. I would say that seems to be the context of it. But there are certain things that we, we don't know. So I tend to be very cautious when it comes to things like that because I know there's a lot of things in Scripture that talk about the danger of communicating with the dead, that it's always associated with sorcery. Um, I do recognize that, um, that some funny things happen in the transition of physical death. Um, To Alan? To Alan? Huh? Alan. Mm-hmm. Well, I um, my, I have a I have a way that I approach anything when it comes to somebody making a claim. Um, I always wait with scripture because I can have somebody tell me any. Now, hold on, I'm going to get to something there. I think there are some things that could be very accurate. I think God could give somebody an experience in heaven where He wants them to communicate something, and that's <coughs> wonderful. Um, I do know that. Um, that there are certain things a lot of times we see coming out of there that um, are not necessarily accurate to Scripture. Now, I know that Scripture is accurate. I have seen it evidenced. I have uh, studied just the way it has been copied and the way it's been affirmed as a historical document. I trust Scripture. I don't trust authors. Now, that's not to say that I'm going to just immediately say, well, I disagree with this guy because he's you know, not quoting scripture all the way through. But if it, if it has any contradiction with scripture at all, I'm going to go with the thing that I know is true. And so I could, um, I could say, well, then if, if it's, if, if it's not contradicting scripture, then I'm just going to say, cool, well, I can't say for sure, but then that's great. As long as they're not contradicting scripture, I'm not going to have an issue. But I, I do have an issue with something that's contradicting scripture and trying to say that it's God. Um, yeah. does talk about the this mortal must put on immortal. I don't think that necessarily means spiritual. Um, I, I think that because we still have to, I think we still have to deal with the fact that there's a physicality to it. But yeah, I think you're, yeah, 
I, I think you're right because it, it, it's still talking about the spiritual existence and it, it seems to give an explanation for the, the material existence but that it's changed. That it's something different. Which, um, I, you cannot do theology based on this but just as an intriguing study, if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, um, it's a fictional book. Um, please don't assume anything about whether or not people can come from hell into heaven but it's this uh, essentially, in, in the book, that uh, there's a bus ride from hell to heaven. And when the people from hell get to heaven, they don't like it. Um, they don't like it at all. And they're complaining and things like that. But it does some very interesting things when it's talking about the, the, the quote-unquote physicality of the, uh, the beings in hell, and they weren't really able to take it in heaven. Um, they're trying to walk across the grass, and the grass is cutting their feet. Um, and they try to pick a flower, and it's just way too strong. It's like their bodies couldn't handle it there. Which, C.S. Lewis is not saying that could ever happen. It's this hypothetical, like, you know, this is interesting. Um, and kind of the ending result, by the way, to give it away, is that um, essentially people who are in hell who are cho- have chosen to be there. Um, it's because you've rejected God that you end up in hell. And um, they, don't, they didn't like it in heaven, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to add one thing. You know, while we all agree that the scripture is there and is the truth, one thing we really need to be careful with the human author is that while they may quote scripture, they may not use it correctly. They may even quote parts yeah. of verse. They may, you know, say what means this when it doesn't mm-hmm. mean this. So just because a book quotes scripture doesn't doesn't make it right. This is absolutely true, and we unfortunately see scripture used out of context more often than not sometimes. Um, ran into an interesting situation. Uh, um, a friend of mine made an assertion that there were people other than Jesus who had not sinned. Um, and he actually quoted... Actually, you know, Romans 5. Let's, if you've got just a second, I want to look at it. And I want to, I want to show you how this happened. And then we'll move on. How much time do we have? we got some time. Um, Romans 5. He actually quoted Romans 5.14. It says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned. And he stopped right there and says, See, some people didn't sin. Okay, let's read that verse in its full context. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned, in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Not saying anybody didn't sin. It's saying that their sin didn't look exactly like Adam's sin. Um... I, and I, this person went back and forth and argued and just bad shape because they weren't able to sit down and actually approach Scripture at face value. Um, you will see so much, you know, especially, let's just face it, the smarter and more academic people are, the easier it is to start forming an argument for the ridiculous. Okay? Let me just tell you, because you get really good. Let me just tell you, brilliant people are brilliant and they're brilliant at deceiving themselves as much as they are coming to the truth. Um, I've been there. I've argued for things that are completely ridiculous. Um, And I'm not as good at it as some of them, but just because it was fun. And I'm like, hey, let's just make up something. And then you can argue. I mean, you could argue that, you know what? Trees don't exist. And I'm like, what? Trees obviously exist. I don't know. I'm not sure that they do because I think that it's a computer program that makes you think that that they exist. And uh, they're uh, they're really just big dandelions. And, um, and you could go on and on and say, well, can you prove that that's not true? 
Well, I'm not, I mean, I can prove that trees, and well, no, you can't prove this, you know, and so you get in these big arguments about stupid stuff. Anyway, all that said, I think you made a really good point that just because somebody uses scripture actually doesn't necessarily mean that it's on. Um, this is why I take the, the, uh, the approach. I just, I don't always read a lot of the new books. I read what the Word of God says, and if somebody has a comment, we'll talk about it, but I think we can get caught up in a lot of wasted time. One, one more comment. Yeah. That's all right. Well, and I'm, I'm preaching to the choir in this class, but, um, but uh, I think there's something to be said for being able to set aside as much as possible your opinion on a subject. I can't tell you how many things that I thought were taught biblically when I just had always been taught it, and so I thought that meant that, well, that's from Scripture. Um, I have had discussions with somebody talking about uh, human free will, and I'm like, where is that taught? Well, it's in the Bible. I'm like, well, is it really taught? that we have an absolutely free will. Because I believe that, you know, there's pretty clear teachings on us being evil, that the heart, you know, heart is deceitful. No man chooses God on his own. In the beginning of Romans, we see that. But man, I've had arguments with people. I argued it myself that like, oh, come on, no. No, because I can choose God. I have a free will. Um, I couldn't find it when it came down to reading Scripture. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't free our will or there's a whole other thing in that, but... We have a tendency to think that things were biblical just because we've always believed it. Anyway, um, still talking about how the heart uh, fits in. Uh, you don't have to copy all this down, but I'm going to argue that the heart refers to the innermost being of a person, the innermost parts of a person. Uh, we see that, and the reason why is we see that the uh, heart condition controls human behavior. We see that in Matthew 5.18. Uh, we see that the heart is linked to thinking. We already mentioned that. That the heart is seen as the seat of emotions. We already mentioned that. But also that the heart is seen as, the, as central to the human condition, both relating to human depravity and to righteousness. Um, I think it's interesting that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see how it talks about the, the Lord looking on the heart of a person to judge them. Um, we see the psalmist actually crying out for God to create in him a clean heart as if that is central to his behavior and to his life. We even see Jesus referring to, Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. Am I quoting that right? Okay. Interesting here. Um, we see how deceit is in the heart. We see that the intent of a man... This is where I think it's interesting. Genesis 8.21. Before we get to Paul and describing human depravity and all those kind of things and the detail that he does in Romans... Here in Genesis 8.21, we see where it actually says that the intent of a man's heart is evil from his youth. Interesting. God actually links human depravity, evil, to the heart. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, we should be able to. Send if you, either me or Teresa an email and we could probably just send you the revised copy. Send me an email and I'll send you a revised copy because I don't think Teresa has this latest version of it. Um, making sense? Okay. That somehow we see the heart referring to the innermost being. Cool. I'm going to move on from it, if that's all right. We're going to be okay to do that? Cool. All right. If you need it, you can email me or talk to Teresa. 
Here's the big question. Where does man get his immaterial soul from? This is intriguing. This actually affects a lot of other issues in theology. First of all, we have the pre-existent view. The pre-existent view is that man existed in spirit form before being incarnated as a body. In other words, every person who has ever lived, is living, or will ever live, their soul was created or existed before the foundation of the earth. This is interesting. Now, the Mormons think this already. Um, this is intriguing. What kind of problems could occur from this thinking before we get to anything else? Well said. It's they're almost godlike. They're pre-existent, just like Jesus was. That's kind of scary. Okay. Um, interesting. That's. I'm glad you all noticed that. We're going to talk more about that. The second is the creation creationist view that that is that man's soul is created by God at the moment of conception. Um, there are some good arguments for this. Decent. Well, I shouldn't say good, but there's some reasonable arguments. Um, the idea that, that as soon as you were conceived, God created your soul and just put you right in there. You know, a little baby growing. Like my, my son Micah is on the way. He's uh, at six months in the womb now. So that would mean that six months ago, God was like, oh, we got a Micah coming. We better whip up a soul, throw him right in there. Um, is that well, What would be the problem? Before we get to it, you all probably read ahead because you're great scholars, but... What would be the problem with that? Not saying that it can't happen, but what would be a, an issue for that? What, what, what was it? Sin. Why sin? Why is sin an issue? What's exactly? So, so then that would mean God was creating a fallen, sinful being. This is a well done. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's there's a little bit of a problem with that. If God rested, it at least seems like when we look at Scripture that, I mean, He rested on the seventh day. It seemed like He says this is good. Essentially, there was kind of a, a completion thing there. Not to say that He can't create anymore, but it seems that, based on the context, that He was kind of done. That He's, you know, He's involved, but that He's not necessarily speaking things into existence right now. Um, interesting. Cool. Good comments. I think one of the most important ones to pay attention to is that one, the issue of human depravity. If we are born evil, and that evil has been handed down based on Adam's sin, how does God going to create a sinful soul? He would have to create. It would be arguable that he would have to create sin. Ah, we're going to talk about that. That gets us. That's a good question. That gets us to the Traducian view. Um, and this is the view that both man's soul and body is passed on from, his, from the parents. Um, let's look at some verses on this. Can I have somebody find me, first of all, Ephesians 2.3? Juliet, I'm going to give you Ephesians 2.3. Um, somebody give me John 3.36. Alright. And then let's have somebody take one of the Psalms. Sounds good. That's good. Um, let's... Uh, you know what? Let's be poetic to start off. And let's maybe start with Psalm 51.5. Just when you get there, Sammy. In the meantime, um, does this make sense? Talking about the Traducian view, it's the idea that just as your 
physical existence uh, came into existence by, well, the birds and the bees. We're not going to go into detail about that. But um, just as your physical existence came to about because of your parents each giving a portion to make you grow, just as that happened, that somehow that the soul came into existence as a result. Yeah? Well, it kind of makes sense uh, if you follow along with that through Adam all descended through Christ all yeah. our faith. I mean, that kind of follows in with that over the time down here. Yeah. Now, one thing I want to say really cautiously, um, on, uh, which, by the way, great, by the way, I think you're exactly right. This is, I think, our primary thing. One thing I want to say to bring caution to this is that I, I'm cautious in my theology. Let me just tell you, there are things in Scripture that are so stinking clear that I will punch people in the face over it. Okay? Okay? I will fight over certain things. Jesus, as the only way to salvation, I will fight. I have fought. I will break relationships over. Okay? These are important things that are so clear. Okay? Scripture has not spoken... Yeah, I have broken relationships over that. Scripture has not spoken with a lot of detail on how the soul is created. There's something mysterious about it. Okay? Yeah? I'm just going to comment. All of these are based on the dichotomy view, too. Um, they, I, mean, I mean, they seem to all be saying, okay, here's where material comes from. How and here's where material, material comes from. And you still haven't got the secret option C yet. Um, oh, you know what? I talked about secret option C without calling it that. Okay. Um, what's that? Yeah, essentially what I was getting at in the, in the heart thing, and I didn't call it secret option C, I should have, but essentially what we're getting at is that there is a human existence that has n- was God created Adam with a soul, and he never said, hey, I want you to be able to split these up later. God created human existence as a unified existence. Now, there are certain aspects of it, just because just as my body has hands and feet, my hands are never meant to be cut off from my arms. Okay? That, the, that the, there's a human existence, I believe, that God has created to be a certain thing. And there might be aspects of it that are different, but they weren't necessarily ever meant to be separated. And so that was where I was getting at, is whether or not there's, there's two things or three things, the secret option C is that you are you. Um, that God has created you as a human being that encompasses all of these aspects. And granted, I'm essentially amalgamizing the, uh, all the other views to say that the point is that your human existence is your human unified existence. That God created you with a spirit and with a body. He will glorify that body and you will still be you in heaven. Um, so I was just playing with words, honestly. Um, hold on, there was another question. Did you have your hand up? No, you were just going like this. Huh. Yes? I was going to say this prior to reading Psalm 51.5, but I don't see man based upon Genesis verse, God breathed into man the breath of life and he became a living soul. I don't see man as having a soul. I see man as being a soul. And soul simply is the arithmetic of soul plus, I'm sorry, body plus spirit Hmm. equals soul. So man is a soul. When the Titanic went down, Back in the day when the word soul was not like something to be afraid of, the newspaper said 12,000 souls yeah. lost at sea. 
Referring to the whole of the unit. Yeah. So the body, soul, spirit trichotomy is erroneously seen as three things when it's really one plus one equals three. Body, soul, spirit. So soul is the combination of the body that was perfect, but Adam wasn't alive until Adam received spirit, God's breath, becoming soul. I think so. It sounds like you're essentially saying that the um, the soul is referring to the unified the, the unified. unit, and I think you're I think you're right. And I'm. I think we can say there's a little bit of speculation, but I think you're, I, I'm agreeing on that, especially when we look at the Greek word suke. Right. It's the same word for soul as for life. It's this idea that, like, you just, you, you is. You, like, that's how it is. Um, well, because I think, well, I think, and I say it that way because just like, because I think we're like, well, you, you are such and such gives this, there's a plurality when we even use the word are. I'm like, you, is it. I like the singleness of it. So anyway, that's a whole other thing. I think you, you brought up an excellent point on that. I think you're absolutely right, especially when we look at the Greek word for it. Um, well, let's look at Psalm 51, 5. In the New King James, Behold, I was shaken in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive. Hmm. Which gives us the idea that like, we were formed with sin already in us, which gives the idea then that Soul was passed down in the same way. Where was our um, Ephesians? Go for it, Juliet. Two, three. Which is essentially just talking about human depravity. Doesn't talk about as much about how we got it, but just that we've always had it. Derek, can you read? Did you have the John three? I do. You have the John three, yeah. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Mm-hmm. Talking about human depravity yet again. Yes. Um, I was just actually have a random thought. There is something to be said for the fact that the human soul can be passed on from the Father, because Jesus did not have an earthly father. That's why mm-hmm. he could be perfect without sin. This is, and, well, and when we talk, speaking specifically, Scripture talks about sin being passed down through the Father. Um, doesn't rule out the other, but it certainly does say that specifically. So, uh, I, I'm trying to just describe this well, but I, when it comes to certain things in Scripture, I like to say, okay, we know this much for sure. It doesn't necessarily rule out something over here, but we know this much for sure. So let's not stretch beyond the bounds of what we know. Um, I will speculate on things sometimes and I'll say, you know what? I know this much. It's possible that this thing over here is true too. But we know, and just like on that, we know that it's passed down from that. Whether or not the mother contributes something, I don't think so because it's not specifically said. But why don't we just err on caution, which I think is kind of what you're... Right. Oh, you've got to agree with me to get in. I mean, that's just... I'm just kidding. Um, yeah? Isn't our sin nature only associated with our flesh? I mean, you're kind of not always saying that it comes through our, our spirit as well. Well, I want to be cautious because it's not just merely associated with your physical flesh. When we, we talk about the fleshly nature, 
we talk, we're, it, it, there's a reference to just the carnality of man that there is a desire to do sin, that we are bent towards sin. But that's a, that affects our soul as well. Uh, it's not merely tied to physical existence. I think we in, in Christianity have had a tendency to lean towards that, that there's, you know, that my sin is directly connected to my material body. Um, but when we see, um, we see phrases like we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that even even at our very heart level or soul level or however you want to say it, that we were, we were bent even at that level. Now, at, at regeneration, we get a, a quote-unquote new nature where we have the ability to no longer, at a spiritual level, no longer sin. We have the possibility of not sinning, but this human existence, the physical existence, is still unglorified. And so that's where I say, I, I, I think that the depravity goes all the way to the spirit. Um, but that, that's based on things like we're dead in our trespasses and sins, that we talk about being spiritually dead. And so I, I would say that, that it goes all the way to that level. But once we're believers, we still have the effects of sin on our physical body, and we're waiting for that to be made glorified. Does that make sense? Speculation. But I, I, think it, I think it's reasonable to say that the depravity goes all the way to the Spirit. Otherwise, we could just kill ourselves and the Spirit could go to heaven because it wasn't tainted. Yeah, not necessarily. That would be a whole nother. That would be a leap, I know. Yeah, but that's where I think the Gnostic view a little bit comes from, saying that, like, well, my spirit is, is pure. It's my body that's the problem. So I'm going to torture my body in order for my spirit to be freed. But then the idea is, like, well, I'm just looking. It doesn't matter what I do in my body because my spirit is clean. That's a whole nother. That's a, that's an extension of that. I know that's not what you're advocating at all. You had a, you had a hand up. In the Traducian view, that's essentially. Difference in the word create and form. I think that's... Um, when we talk about create, we're talking about speaks into existence. Um, the issue there is just like... Um, it's arguable that God has... God um, obviously still has control over the universe. When, when someone is healed of an ailment, I, think it's, I believe that God is controlling the created universe to accomplish something. Um, and in the same way with... Um, trying to think of a better example, but we could, well, we could say with a healing, where God is moving in this universe to heal a person. I believe God can still do that. He still does it. Um, but what, it's something different to God speaking and saying, let there be light. That there's a, there's a poof out of nothing and then there's a forming. And I think when we see that, which we're going to talk a little bit more about, when we talk about him forming me in my mother's womb and, and, and having a, a hand in that process, I don't think that's the same as him speaking my soul into existence. Any more than um, I, I, I came about because my parents loved each other, to euphemize it. Um, okay, and they do love each other, which I'm thankful for. But um, that God had a hand in making that work. He is in control of that. 
but God didn't speak me into existence. And so that's that's where I differentiate between formed and created. Yeah. Um, Well, well, this is the thing. This is the thing. I, I, and that's why I'm saying I, I can't say for sure. But I don't. I can't say. I just know that my mom has a soul. My dad has a soul. I somehow have a soul. My mom has a body. My dad has a body. Somehow, those two things came together to make me. I think it's reasonable to say that somehow God used that. And that's, I'm essentially quoting the tradition view. But it's reasonable to say that in the same way that God formed that process for human reproductivity, that he could do the same thing with the soul. Now, I don't know for sure. Let's move on, though, because um, we're about to get to that, because I'm going to have to copy a couple of things here. This is problems with pre-existence view. It's not ever taught in Scripture. We're jumping back to saying that if, to say that the, the soul existed before you were created... Um, it's not ever taught in Scripture. Um, when references are made to God knowing someone before their birth, uh, it is ascribed to His omniscience, not their present existence. This is the thing that, honestly, when it talked about God's foreknowledge and said, you know, that essentially says that God knew me before the universe was created, that seems to give this idea that my soul has always existed. What problem is there with that? What is the Mormon belief? But just because it's the Mormon belief doesn't make it wrong but I think it's wrong right would have been um, here's the thing I think Alan mentions it well here he says it seems to be a reference to God's omniscience and when we talk about creation remember let me make sure this is a dry erase we talk about creation we talk about there's God here and then we have creation now I hate to put it in kind of a box or anything because that's the wrong thing but we have things like time Time, matter, and so forth are in the created order. God spoke this. Spoke this into existence. He spoke the universe into existence, and so thus things like time and matter and what space, there we go, that's the other thing I was looking for, are all inside of that. So when we talk about God's foreknowledge, I am a created thing, right? So Dan, who has a soul and a body, and if we want to go to the trichotomous view, he'll have a spirit too, but Dan is inside this created order. I have been spoken into existence. So for God to know me before time began, it's a reference to the fact that he exists outside of the universe. He is not bound by time. He is not bound by space. Nothing like that affects him. So that means him knowing me before the creation of the world means he knew it because he's outside of this. Not because he was back in time or because I've always existed. Does that make sense? That's a big thing to wrap the mind around. You all can say, I have no idea. That would, I think that would be a paralleled illustration. I think you're absolutely right. I think that would, now obviously anytime we do an analogy for God's relationship to man, any analogy we have is kind of very, very limited, but I think that's a good analogy in the sense of like, 
I could very well picture the thing before I put it into existence, and you could even say that I know it. Like I, I um, you could say that I know characters. Let's say I was going to write a book, or Derek is a playwright. Derek, could, you could say that he knows his characters well before he's putting anything on paper, uh, or before the play has been put into action. But that is about his omniscience over the characters, not about the characters' pre-existence. So good illustration, actually. Cool. We need to move on because we're going to run out of time and I'm going to get in trouble. How late do we... Are we allowed to go to 10.30, right? Yeah. Cool. All right, so anyway, pre-existence doesn't so much work. Da-da-da-da. This is view of Mormonism and many Eastern religions which include reincarnation as a major tenet of their faith. Uh, problems with creationist view. The Bible clearly teaches God rested from creation on day seven. This would seem to preclude any, con- any continued creation activity. Um, we don't know for sure. He doesn't say, hey, and by the way, I'm not going to create any more after that. But it does seem to have this kind of finitude to it, that he, or finishedness, not finitude. It's kind of like he's, he says, I rest, he says it's good, and I'm done. Um, uh, he, I ask the hypothetical question, does this mean God creates animal souls as well? I don't know. I don't think so. Would, um, th- and he also says that this would imply that God creates perfect souls and then puts them in a sinful body or that God creates a fallen soul and puts it in a sinful body. Uh, both are problematic theologically. I think, we men- I think Juliet mentioned that. I think this is a big issue. Um, if God was just to create the soul, um, it would not really work to have a perfect soul in a sinful body because then we kind of get to this Gnostic view of that my spirit is good and my flesh is evil. Um, which is true once I've been regenerated, but not before then. Um, and the, the other issue of God creating a sinful nature, we've got a real problem with that. So the Traducian view, um, Alan's not very good at hiding his cards. He's, he says, this makes the most sense biblically. I, I think he's probably right. Um, uh, I wouldn't necessarily just say absolutely sure, but I think it does make pretty good sense. Uh, God created men and animals with the ability to both reproduce a physical body and an immaterial soul after their kind. There is a very good point to be made when God says recreates, uh, reproduces after their kind um, that it would make sense that everything to do with that being is reproduced uh, after its kind. Um, I think, let me just tell you, I think a lot of our problems in this is us overcomplicating things. We want to figure out, is there a body? Is there a soul? Is there a spirit? Is there this? Is there that? And then they're divided. So then, okay, I know that this happens this way, so what about this? Well, God doesn't necessarily differentiate that too much. You are you. God has created you with a body and a spirit, and if we're going to just take the face value of Scripture, I'm going to say that the soul is reproduced in the same way that the body is. But once again, I just don't know for sure. Um, So anyway... This also prevents God from being part of the creation of sinful souls or perfect souls which are then made, into, made sinful by imputation. Um, making sense? Okay, let me just say, I want to sum this all up by saying there is a lot of speculation. Anytime you get into how the human existence is divided, we got a lot of speculation. Let us always err on this thing that God has created you for fellowship with Him. Remember, this is what we got at at the beginning. That God has created you for fellowship with Him. Important to that is that there is some type of an immaterial existence with you. So let's just understand that that is in unity and that there is a relationship that God, with God that comes out of it. I think we, we need to be cautious 
and understand that when we're talking about like whether or not there's a body, soul, and spirit, or just two, or how all that works, we're speculating educatedly based on Scripture, but just know that. So, any final thoughts before we close out? Cool. Thank you all very much. Alan will be back next week, and he'll do a fine job. Um, let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for the chance to get together with this class. Um, I want to thank you for the work you're doing in here to equip saints. Um, God, I pray that as we learn these things, that this would not be information that's merely just processed, stored away, but that um, as much as is possible, God, I pray that this would be turned into information that we use to make a difference for your kingdom. God, I, I ask that these kind of things, where we, we really have gotten into a fairly in, uh, deep discussion about the nature of humanity, um, some of it's more than we necessarily need to know. So God, may that be deeper structure to solidify this foundation of knowledge so that our activity for preaching the gospel, for spreading the gospel, for living Christ-like lives would be even more strong. Or to be grammatically correct, to be stronger. God, I just ask that you would work in us today. Use us for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Have a good week. Thanks.